Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series titled Over the Rainbow. In today's talk, we focus on where the wide path ends. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. our series over the rainbow, looking at that place beyond the rain, beyond the moon, right? Uh, Eternity. We're looking at what happens after death. That's something we all want to be prepared for. We prepare for everything in the future. You prepare for what you're going to do when you graduate high school. You prepare for what you're going to do when you graduate college. You prepare for what are we going to do to have children. You know, we're going to get a bigger house, bigger car. We even prepare for retirement. But it's amazing how few people think about, well, what How do I prepare for what's beyond this life? You know, what we will do for not just a a period of years, 20 years, but how am I gonna prepare myself for eternity? And so in our first message on Easter Sunday, we talked about how we can have, uh, we can overcome the fear of death, how Jesus through his resurrection helps us overcome that fear of death. And then we also looked at Jesus and what he did for us in removing the sting of death for believers. We talked about what happens to a believer immediately when they die. What are our loved ones doing uh, in eternity right now? And this week we're going to, we have the unenviable task of looking at where the wide path ends. We get the wide path from Jesus, his own words in Matthew chapter seven, verse 13. Jesus gives us all an encouragement. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. He says, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. So Jesus talks about there being a narrow path and a wide path. What he's assuring us this morning is every single one of us, man, woman, and child, we're all on a path. We're on a path through life. And every path that you get on has a final destination. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at what we refer to as heaven. But today, we've got to talk about hell, where the wide path ends. The Bible talks about the wide path. It describes it as being easy. It's wide. Many people go there because it's easy. It's simple. It's convenient. You don't have to fight very much. You just kind of go with the flow. You just follow the stream because that's where most are going. It's a convenient path. If we're following the crowd and we're making many of our moral and ethical decisions and spiritual decisions based upon what the majority are doing, friends, that's a good indicator that you have aligned yourself with the wide path. And we're going to look this morning at where the wide path ends. Now, the problem is it ends in hell. A lot of times we try to define hell for ourselves for whatever reason. We'll describe a lot of things as hell in life, won't we? Somebody will look back at their high school yearbook and go, wow, high school was hell, you know? And they'll look back and they're just remembering all the rejection and the, the school lunches and algebra, and then, well, you know, high school was hell. You know, and then, or will we may, if you're in a bad marriage, they may describe their marriage as hell to somebody. Those who've been in the military, they may look back and they'll say, war is hell. And while war might be one of the worst things that a human could possibly endure in their lifetime, the atrocities that you see, the death and the sorrow, the separation from your loved ones, the pain, the agony, 
war still hasn't, doesn't hold a candle to what God describes hell to be. And let me just say, as we're introducing this topic this morning, can I tell you, this is, I, I don't enjoy preaching these kinds of messages. I don't enjoy talking about hell. I'd much rather tell you about how to have a great marriage. I'd much rather tell you about how glorious heaven's gonna be, how much God loves you, and all of these things are true. And there's a lot of pastors, friends, who won't tell you about hell. I was listening to an interview the other day of a very famous preacher, I won't mention his name, but he was interviewed on TV and he says, it's interesting as a pastor, you never preach on hell. And he just kind of smiled and said, I want my people to come encouraged. People have such a hard time in life as it is. I just want them to walk away from my, my church encouraged. And that sounds good at first, doesn't it? Because, I mean, who wants to walk away from church feeling bad? Did you know sometimes God does? James 4, 9, God talks about, let your happiness be turned to mourning. There is a period of time sometimes when a, a message is true, and if we don't feel sorry for a little bit, we're going to feel sorry for a long time, and God knows that. So there are times when God wants us to hear a message, and he wants us to bear a little bit of sorrow in our hearts for the seriousness, the severity of the message. Now, friends, if, if, I, if I loved myself, I would never teach on hell. Okay? If all I wanted to do is make you happy, make you want to come back to church every week and not give you the truth, I would never preach on hell. I'd just preach on how to, how to have a good life, how to make more money, how to be happy. But friends, I preach on hell today because I care about you. And I want you to know there is a wide path. Most people are on it. And where the wide path ends is not a good place. You don't want to go there. And I will risk your relationship with me to tell you about it. So this morning, we're going to look at hell and what it actually is, what it's like. And this process, what happens, those who are on the wide path, we're going to talk this morning, what happens at the moment of their death, and what should they expect as sort of a schedule, a timeline of their eternity. I've got a, a little graphic up here. Skip a couple verses down, guys running PowerPoint. There we go. Um, this is the closest thing I can come up with to help people understand what happens to a person who's on the wide path when they die. It's a little bit confusing, and there's not universal agreement amongst theologians, but a majority will, will follow this. You understand that hell is a penal institution, and as such, it, it's easier to kind of follow that progression. The Bible says that God has laws that we have to follow. When you don't follow those laws, right, there is, there's a consequence for that. And so, if you will, uh, when you do something wrong, you break the laws of the land, you get arrested. You're back in the back of a cop car. And then in the back there, you're contemplating, boy, what did, how did I get myself here? And from there, you go to jail. It's, a, it's not a nice place. You're sharing the, a cell with 15 other guys. One of them's named Bubba, and he snores. And so from there, you're awaiting sentencing. If you can't post bail, and you, or maybe you cannot, uh, you're awaiting your sentencing. You're going to go to a courtroom, and the judge is going to find you guilty or not guilty. He finds you guilty. Then you're not going to go back to jail. Where will you go? You go to prison out by my house, out in Summit. You're going to go there for a while. And if you, if you look at the path of the, the, the wide path and where it ends, it follows a similar structure. If you will, the arrest is death. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed under man once to die, and after that, the judgment. There's no second chances. There's no reincarnation. There's no purgatory. It's simply we die, and then there's a judgment. Okay? So if you will, death is the arrest. There's no second chances after that. Hades, also called Sheol, is the confusing part. We'll talk about that in a minute. Is a, if you will, a temporary holding place until the courtroom. 
The great courtroom for an unbeliever is what we call the great white throne judgment. Also talking about that today. Following the sentencing of God, if you will, then he will put you in the long-term, if you will, eternal holding facility, uh, the prison, which is what the Bible refers to as the lake of fire. So uh, let's move on here. Let's talk about the jail, okay? Let's talk about... It's called, it's called Hades, it's called Sheol. Uh, more on that in a minute. But if you will, open up your Bibles, I mean, just all the way to the very end. I'm gonna make it easy on you. I'm not asking you to find Nahum, okay? Revelation, I mean, the very, I mean, right before you get to the table contents and all the maps, right there, Revelation chapter 20. In beginning in verse 13, He's going, this, here at this point of Revelation, God has given his timeline. At the beginning, he talks about the church age, okay, then the, the church is gone, then we never hear the church again during the great tribulation period. Following that, you know, we talk about the millennial kingdom, where Christ rules for a thousand years, and then after that, the Bible starts tying a bow on human history, and it talks about eternal futures. Where do we go? Where, where does the narrow path end? Where's the wide path ends. And here is where God shows where the wide path ends. Now, we're going to take this text slightly out of its chronology so that you understand uh, how things happen in order. So first, let's look at Revelation 20 in verse 13. He says, and the sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they have done. And so the text here describes a place of holding. It describes death, and it describes Hades. Death describes our physical death. Our body doesn't go to Sheol. Our body doesn't go to Hades. By the way, just to make that clear, Hades and Sheol are the same thing. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. So when we talk about that holding place in the Old Testament, we use the word Sheol. Sometimes Sheol is repeated later, but... Um, in the New Testament, we would talk, it was, the Greek word for that is Hades, okay? Sometimes Hades gets mis, uh, misinterpreted as hell in certain translations. Sometimes your King James will call it hell. It's not actually hell. It's the word Hades. It's different from the lake of fire, okay? So these two things describe a temporary place. When our bodies die, if you're on the wide uh, path, well, even if you're on the narrow path, uh, when we die, our bodies go into the grave. That's our holding place. It's here on earth. It's death. It's the word Thanatos, where, uh, where Marvel gets its villain name, Thanos. It means death. And so our body goes into the ground. But over here, our spirit doesn't go into the ground. We don't go to soul sleep. Our spirit goes someplace else. It goes to what the Bible just refers to as Sheol, or Hades. Now, the terms Sheol and Hades can be used interchangeably both for believers and unbelievers, but it doesn't mean that we go to the same holding place, okay? If you will, as you look in the Bible, there's kind of a good side and bad side of Sheol and Hades. When we use the term Sheol, it's uh, that Old Testament term. The Old Testament doesn't tell you much about the afterlife. It just doesn't. It gives you, if you will, sort of a vague outline, a silhouette. And so it just talks about all people are going to this holding place for your spirit, which is Hades or Sheol. Uh, there's, a, there's a fellow who uh, said he spent 23 minutes in hell. His name's Bill Weiss. And uh, I don't know how he figured 23 minutes. I mean, was he clocking himself? But he said he went to hell for 23 minutes. Friends, when you hear all these books people are writing, I went to heaven and came back. I went to hell and came back. Friends, don't believe a word of it. Hebrews 9.27, you die once and then the judgment. There's, there's no coming back. 
unless God wills it to happen, okay? So this guy didn't really go to hell, but he wrote a book that he went to hell. But the bad thing is, is nobody's in hell right now. Did you realize that? Nobody's in actual hell right now. Who are gonna be the first three people in hell? It's gonna be the beast, the antichrist, you know, the false prophet, and Satan himself. It's the unholy trinity, the dark lords of the tribulation. They will be the very first ones cast into hell. Are they there yet? No, how do we know? Because Revelation hasn't completed yet. So if you have somebody telling you they've been to hell and back, friends, they're sadly mistaken. They've not been to hell. Nobody is there right now. There are people in a place of torment right now, but nobody is technically in hell just yet. And so uh, let's talk a little bit more about what the Bible calls Sheol or Hades. Again, Sheol is the Old Testament term, Hebrew term, Hades, the New Testament term. Uh, when, you went to, when you died, the, uh, the righteous dead, they would be taken, their Hades, the place where their spirit goes to await their final place, which is the, the new Jerusalem on the new heaven and the new earth. While we await that place, friends, we're immediately in the presence of God. And there's not universal agreement on this, but friends, it's always been this way. The reason I know is you look at Jesus, the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross, friends, is not, even though he's in the New Testament, he's still considered an Old Testament saint. Jesus hadn't yet died and rose again, and yet Jesus says on that day, where is he going to be? In paradise. Where did people in the Old Testament go? In their Hades, their shield, their holding place until eternity. They went to paradise. Paradisos, a wall around. It's, a, uh, it's that walled garden. It's the presence of God. Okay, and, and, and then the new Jerusalem as Jesus prepared that, and then that's going to descend upon the new earth. Have we sufficiently confused everybody yet? Hope not. Okay, so Sheol, Hades, same thing, different terms, right? Good and bad are both described as being cast into or sent into Hades, but there's a good side and a bad side. Let me simplify this a little bit more. We talked about the bad side a little bit, right? You remember that graphic. You go to the bad side, you go to jail, you get sentenced, you go to prison, okay? You go to Hades, this is a place of torment. Luke chapter 16, Jesus describes uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Even though it's a parable, he's still describing an actual, you know, an event that can take place where you're in this place of torment. It's a place of darkness, it's a holding place. But believers, something else happens. Best illustration I can give you here, show me the picture of a Dis Hong Kong Disney here. Yes, that is Disney, even though at the very end you can't see the castle, we laughed at it too when we got there. Being from Orlando, we're like, what is at the end of that road? I think there's a tiny little castle. Hong Kong laws won't let it get that big, but this is Hong Kong Disney. My family, when we went there, we got there very early because this is what I do, I get places early. And we showed up early and we bought our tickets there. The buying of that tickets, if you will, is sort of a picture of when we receive Christ. I now have a ticket for entry. Then we went, took that ticket and we went into the gate booth and they looked and they examined, yes, your ticket is good, you may come in. That is sort of, if you will, a picture of death. I'm crossing the gate. Here's where everybody else is, where things are dirty and nasty and the minute you step through the gate, everything is clean and pretty, okay? And so, but we're still not yet where we will be. You see, in Hong Kong Disney, when you get your ticket and you get there early, they actually let you enter the park, but only part way. You can get up into a lot of what you see here in Main Street and the music is playing and it's happy and they're pumping out the, the, the happy smells and whatever kind of drugs Disney puts us under while we're there. And, and it just, it, it feels happy and Mickey's out there there and you can, you can hear the music and you can go to the shops and you can get the ice cream and you can wear the hat with all the ears on them, okay? 
We're, but we're in a holding place. We're not yet where we will be. We're not yet where the ticket said we would be, but we are in a holding place of happiness. That, if you will, is a picture of paradise. We're in, we're, we're in the presence of something the Father has created, Walt Disney, but it's not where we will be long-term. That's the magic kingdom. And eventually, at the, when the appointed time comes, and then they have this gate here, and everybody's waiting, and they open the gates, and we all come in together, and we're singing and skipping, and, and you know, you're, you're chasing after your child. That is kind of what it looks like for the believer. We have this, we, we die, we go into this holding place, which is still a happy place, and then at the appointed time, you know, our, we're given resurrected bodies and we enter into eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. But for the unbelievers, we'll throw this graphic up here again for you. Again, for the unbelievers, they die, they go into a holding place too, but it's not a happy place. Luke 16 says it's a place of torment. It's never a happy place when you're, when you're going to a penal institution. They will arrive at the great white throne and then finally, the lake of fire. Hopefully, all of my pictures here helps clarify a little bit what Sheol or Hades is. It's not specifically the grave because that's where your body is, that's death. All right, let's move on to the great white throne, to the courtroom. In chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, he says this, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from whom his presence earth and sky fled away. He's great and he's mighty and he's terrifying. He says, but no place was found for them. He did, they didn't belong to the Lord. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by according to what was in the books, uh, according to what they have done. So that, what we just read here, what event is that? It's the great white throne. You guys are good readers. It's the great white throne judgment. Again, just as a reminder, who's gonna be at the great white throne? Lost people, are you gonna stand before the great white throne? Not if you're a follower of Jesus. What happened to your sins? Colossians 2 says the handwriting of ordinance that was God's rap sheet on you was nailed to the cross, right? Jesus said paid in full when he died on the cross. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God is not, does no longer keeps a record on you. God says he takes your sin and casts them into the depths of the sea, a place that can never be retrieved. And to that we all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Everything that you've done, it's not gonna get replayed again for everybody to see. But for lost people, it will. And it's going to happen, if you will, at the great white throne. Now, chronologically speaking, why, you know, believers have already had their judgment. If you read, again, through Revelation, you have the church age, and then you have an event take place where God says, come up here. To me, I think that's an allusion to the rapture of the church. He talks about the seven churches, come up here, and John is immediately in the presence of God, and you never hear the word church again until the very end, after the tribulation. And while they're in the presence of heaven, come up here, what, is, what do they already see surrounding the throne? 24 elders, 24 is a, num uh, a number of administration. It's, it shows a completeness, a fullness. They represent church believers for all time. And at this point, they already have their crowns. They've had their bema, they have their judgment. And God has already judged them, not according to their sin, but according to what? Their works. Whether they were light and empty, just little 
empty, worthless things, or whether we live for eternal things and there will be great reward. That has already taken place chronologically in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter four. Following that, you hear the, the tribulation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and then God ties a bow on eternity, heaven and hell and all that. <clears throat> So what happens at the great white throne judgment? Let's break that down. It's described as great. It's this mighty, it's this enormous presence before you from whom heaven and earth flee away. It's intimidating. Friends, we serve an intimidating God. When you read C.S. Lewis you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia and they describe Aslan, they say, is he safe? And they says, no, <laughs> but he is good. That is our God, friends. Is our God safe? No. Our God is mighty and he's terrifying. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God is not someone to be trifled with. This throne is described as great and his voice is described that is the sound of many waters. When God speaks, it's Niagara Falls. Our God is an intimidating God. But he's good. So his throne is described as great, but it's also described as white. White in the Bible, it describes something that is pure, something that is holy. God exists in beautiful, radiant white holiness. God's holiness is, is intimidating. When Moses saw the reflection of God's holiness from the dirt, that's when you're holy. You can see your reflection in the dirt. And it caused Moses' face to shine in the wilderness so brightly that they had to throw a towel over his head. Friends, that's glorious. But that's our God. And so it's, it's a, the throne is described as great. It's mighty. It's powerful. It's described as white, so it's a place of holiness. So whatever judgment God gives at the great white throne, it will be just. There will no be lobbying the court. There's not going to be any shyster lawyers. There's not going to be any people getting out of judgment. God isn't going to overlook things at that point. He's going to give absolute, perfect justice. And it's also described as a throne. What happens at a throne? A throne implies that you are a sovereign. God is sovereign, he's on his throne. And back then when you had a sovereign, you had a monarch, people would come before you and that was your courtroom. You would stand before the king and you would present your case, other people would present their case and the monarch in his sovereignty would issue justice. You would either be exonerated from your crimes or he would have you thrown into prison or maybe something worse. And so this is a throne, it's a place of judgment. The one who sits on this throne is also described, it says, from whom his presence, this earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. Sinful man will not be allowed to live long-term in the presence of God. Reminds me of the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. It says, the hairs of his head were like white, white wool like snow, again, radiant holiness. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. This image that he's creating for us of Jesus Christ is meant to intimidate. Sometimes we have a very low view of God. We just, we kind of picture God as kind of like our little buddy. We just put our arm around him. Hey, we call him silly things like the man upstairs, and we have, it just shows that we have a very low view of God. We serve a little God. Revelation won't let you picture Jesus as your little buddy who you hang out with. He is our God in his glory. And here it describes people standing before him. It says, I saw the dead, Revelation 20, 12. He says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. When unrighteous are standing before the throne, it shows, it shows respect. There will be no disorder in God's court. 
Remember, Philippians 2 says there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. You're not going to stand before the presence of God and curse his name. You will stand there and you will receive what God gives you. Friends, it makes a big difference when you confess Jesus as Lord. Everybody will. You confess him right now in faith, you're one of his children and you live eternally with him. If God forces you to confess him as Lord in eternity, friends, at that point, you're at the great white throne and there's no going back. God says both great and small will be here. So no matter your station, whether you're a big person, little person, whether you're a wealthy person, whether you're a poor person, whether you're a healthy person, whether you lived a life of the infirmed, all will stand before God because it doesn't matter how you lived your life or with what comfort or lack of comfort you had. All that matters here is, is your name written in the book of life. Here it says, God opens the books. What books are we talking about? We're talking about the books of man's works. And we're talking about the book of life. More on that in a moment. This scene here in, of the great white throne is also described in Daniel chapter 7. He says in verses 9 to 10, And I looked, and the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, who's that? That's Jesus. The Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was of fiery flames, its wheels were of burning fire. And it says, A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. So that's a lot of people, but what does it also say? Ten thousands upon ten thousands stood before him in judgment. And the books were opened. As a, anytime a person is born and we start living our life, God keeps an accurate record of everything we've ever done, not just the sins that people know about. God sees the sins that we don't know about. God says the day will make it manifest. It will be revealed. Even our thoughts, our sinful thoughts that we had, our lustful thoughts, our angry thoughts, our hateful thoughts, God will see even our motives. So maybe I came to church, but my motive was just to get my wife off my back. You know, maybe I gave money in the plate, but it was just so that one of the ushers could see me giving money and I could look impressive. Or maybe God sees me serving over in this department, you know, but as a, as a young person, I was only serving over here so I could uh, try to date this, this pretty girl who's also serving in that department. God sees our motives. And so these books will be opened and God will judge lost people according to their sins. Again, lost people, not believers. And it also describes here, a, another book was opened. Verse, look at verse 12 of Revelation 20. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The book of life, also called the Lamb's book of life, if you will, is God's family photo album. It's everybody who's related to God, those who have been adopted into his family. They were a child of their father, the devil. Friends, you're all a father of somebody. We're either a father of the devil, our father's the devil, or our father is Jesus Christ. There's no, I'm gonna be a father of somebody else. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees. He says, you're of your father, the devil. These religious guys who did all these religious things, still the father of the devil. Why? Because his works were what they were doing. And so we're either a father of the devil or, or, or we're in God's book of life called the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, that's the same book. If you hear Book of Life or Lamb's Book of Life, same book mentioned in Revelation and Philippians. How do we get our name written there? See, God loves the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
How do we get our name in his book? God is this loving father who's seeking to adopt out any who, if you will, are willing. Anyone who will put their faith in Jesus Christ, God will adopt into his family. But you have to desire to be in that family. You, have to be, you don't have to be wealthy, you don't have to be smart, you don't have to be good looking. You just have to be honest with God. You have laws, God, and you are God. You get to make those laws. I've broken those laws. And because of that, because you're a good God, you must punish that sin. You must separate me from you in the lake of fire because I've offended an infinitely holy God. But in repentance, God, I'm, I have a change of heart. These sins which I once thought were great, I see them as awful. These, the, the living in the presence of God and holiness I thought was boring, I now see it as very attractive and appealing. In God, I change my heart. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I believe in Jesus. I believe he came to earth to live the life I could not, that he died on the cross and shed his blood, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, that anybody who puts their faith in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, that's how you get into God's family. You simply are honest with him. You receive his message gladly. And then God says, all who the Father give me, I will in no wise cast out. Is there anybody here that Jesus won't take in? Not a one. His offer stands freely for all who will put their faith and their trust in him. That's how you get your name in God's photo album. And friends, once your name is there, just give you a little bit of a reminder, a little assurance here. Remember when we studied the churches of Revelation, Revelation chapter three and verse five, what it said? He says, the one who conquers, again, that just simply means the one who has finished their, their race here. They have been faithful to Christ to the end because that's what a true believer is. They don't turn their back on God because they cannot. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, the righteousness of Christ. He says, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. See, see right there, you can have your name blotted out. That's not what it says. God never implies that he would ever blot someone's name out. He only gives us a promise that he will not. He's referencing a custom here on earth that there's a, there are cities, they'll do a census and they'll take a record of everybody on the roll and they'll write your names down in the book. But the problem is, let's say you grew up and you'd be a scoundrel and you do all kinds of crimes and things and this city's like, I'm embarrassed of this guy. Let's wipe out his name from our roster. He's no longer belongs to our city. We're ashamed of this guy. God is saying man will do that to you, but God will never do that to you no matter what you do. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're one of his children, he will never blot out your name. That is the promise of God, friends. This is a promise of eternal security in him. So with the book of man's sin and the book of life, God judges their sins, and it says the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what happens to a lawbreaker after the judge passes sentence? Now he goes to the long-term holding facility, the penal institution. The Bible calls the lake of fire. So let's look at the prison here. The lake of fire, verse 14 in Revelation chapter 20. It says, then death and Hades, we all remember what those are. Death is where your body is. Hades is where your spirit is. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Of fire Again, death in Hades. God is going to, if you will, you're good, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, some unto eternal life. There's also going to be a resurrection of the dead unto eternal death, the second death, eternal judgment. Three times in this passage, the Bible describes this as a lake of fire. 
people are thrown into a lake of fire. Thrown implies that there is a sovereign, a higher power who has seen fit to discard you. It's an involuntary act. You can get thrown out of bars. You can get thrown out of amusement parks, believe it or not. Um, you can get thrown into prison. The Bible describes these people as being cast, thrown against their will into a place that the Bible describes as a lake of fire. It's a lake because a lake is what? It's a large holding facility. The rain just kind of comes in and the groundwater, whatever, and it just hold, it's a holding place for all the water. The Bible describes hell as a lake of fire. It's a large holding place with a, if you will, a literal fire. The Bible isn't talking figuratively here. Don't, don't base your understanding of hell on Dante's Inferno. Dante didn't know anything about God, okay? He doesn't know anything about hell. He's not been there. So don't read ancient literature and say, hell is just a state of mind, it's not a real place. Jesus saw it as a real place. And by the way, Jesus, loving, meek, gentle, kind, merciful Jesus, talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Do you realize that? Jesus who loves us, who died in our place, who says, oh Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I would gather you as a, as a mother hen under my wings, but you would not. That same Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else. It's because of his compassion. He doesn't want you to go there. Bible says God does not delight in the death of the wicked, is not willing that any should perish. God's desire, his intent, is that all should come to eternal life. But there's some people who will not come under the wings of our Father. So it's described as a lake, it's a holding place. It's also described as that literal fire. Fire in the Bible, whenever you read it, it's a, it's a type, it's a symbol, a picture of God's judgment. Whenever you would offer up a sacrifice to God, what would you do with it? It would be a burned offering. It's a picture of God's judgment against sin upon this innocent one. A picture of what God would do as he judges Christ, an innocent one in our place. But if also, if you look, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, it was destroyed by fire. Second uh, Kings 1, Elijah's enemies, they were consumed by fire. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 described the throne of God at the great right throne as a, as a fire that's proceeding forth from the throne in judgment against those who have sinned against God. So why is it a lake of fire? Why is it always described as like fire and brimstone? What is brimstone anyway? Brimstone <clears throat> is sulfur, okay? And often, and Jesus is referencing something to give us a picture of what hell is like. He's referencing something that was a common element found in the Dead Sea region. And sulfur, when ignited, actually runs and melts and it's, it's ridiculously hot. And it creates this choking gas. And so when Jesus wants to picture what hell is like to you and I, he says it's a, it's a lake of fire it's this molten rock. It's this place that burns with intense heat of this choking gas. It's a place of torment. Nobody wants to go there. Also, when we talk about hell, I got a picture of what you'll see in hell, by the way. Go to the next slide. Oh, that's a different one. Just kidding. There's a blank slide. There we go. That's not a mistake, by the way. Here's what you're gonna see in hell. Often, you know, when I was a kid, I, I watched Bugs Bunny like the rest of you, and you know, sometimes Bugs Bunny, for whatever reason, somebody thought kids want to see Bugs Bunny go to hell sometimes. Uh, and so he would go there, and they would, you know, be run around, and you know, there'd be people with pitchforks, and you know, running around. It's just this, like this, it's sort of a dimly lit kind of like, you know, party environment, and there's fires and stuff, sure, but otherwise, other than the environment, life goes on. 
Or, you know, you'll get older and you'll read like the old Far Side comics. Anybody still read those? Far Side comics, and they'll always have, you know, Satan in hell, and he's got a clipboard or something, and there's like rocks, and there's fire, but you can still see. And yeah, the decor is not much to speak of, but, you know, it's still life. Friends, this is what we see in hell. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness. Jesus, in Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus says, while the sons of the kingdom, that's the Jews, there's some people who are God's chosen people on earth who aren't gonna be God's chosen people in eternity. He says, some who are the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus described it as a place of outer darkness. But it's not the only place. Nahum 1.7 says, God will make a complete end of his adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into where? Into the darkness. Even worse yet, Jude 1.13, speaking of false teachers, it says, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. False teachers will go to the lake of fire someday, and Jude describes it as a place of utter darkness forever. So no, hell isn't a place where you can just kind of walk around and you can look at things and maybe you lament the, the decor. Darkness is all that we will experience. Have you ever been in complete, utter darkness? I mean, utter darkness. Not like, oh, it's a little dim in this room, but complete darkness. If you've ever been to a cave, you've seen it. And if, and if they've ever flicked off the lights, they usually they don't leave it off for more than about 20 or 30 seconds because if they did, children would be shrieking, they'd be pounding, people would be tripping over each other, there'd be a mass stampede because humans were meant for the light. We're meant to be children of the day. We're meant to be able to see things. And so to be in a place of darkness creates a sense of despair, of being alone, of despondency. When you can't see your own hand in front of your face, it's a terrifying feeling. I have no reference point for my life. I'm just, and it creates a sense of panic. First time I experienced that, I was spending the night at a friend's house as a little kid. I went to Mitch Zerbel's house. And Mitch, for whatever reason, slept in the basement and like covered up the windows. And I, I slept on the second floor with like four other boys. It was a family of nine kids. With like four other boys in this room and the hall light was always on. There was always this bright outdoor light that we slept by. And so it was dark, but there was plenty of light. I went to Mitch's house as a little kid and he shut off that light to go to sleep. And I looked around and my mind is immediately scanning for any source of light at all. And when I couldn't find it, I don't know what came over me as a kid, but I panicked and I started tripping over his toys, running for the stairs. I was gonna go to the bathroom just so I could flick on the light. How does Mitch do this every night? I don't know, but it, when you're in utter darkness and you can't see anything, you have no reference point for your life, friends, for, for a finite being, that's a terrifying place. The Bible describes hell as a place of utter and complete darkness. You see, God is described as light. Jesus is described as light. Truth is described as light. God's word is described as a lamp, as a light. Even you as believers are described as the light of the world. Friends, there's no light in hell. None of these things are in hell. You're in a place of utter darkness. The Bible also describes as hell as being an eternal place. Jesus, who talked more about hell than anybody else, uh, used the term Gehenna to describe hell. Now, Gehenna was a real place called the valley or the valley of Hinnom. And it was a dark place. Listen to what Jesus refers to here when he says hell. In Mark 9, 47 to 49, Jesus says this. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
Those are harsh words. Under what circumstance would you ever be willing to tear your eyeball out? If you knew that God gave you a choice, tear your eyeball out now in real life so that you don't go to hell forever, God says you would consider that a fortunate trade. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, if there's something keeping you from God, tear it out of your life, for it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes, but thrown into hell. There's that word. And then he describes hell a little bit. He says, it's where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Where the worm does not die, right here, it's raining outside right now, in a little bit, we're gonna have all kinds of little creepy crawlers, right? Little worms on the sidewalk. And they're not smart enough to get off the sidewalk. It's going to get sunny again someday. And those worms are just going to sit there and they're going to bake. They're weak. They're fragile. A little bit of sunshine kills them. God says, even the weakest of the animal kingdom will not be annihilated in eternity. So there's no hope of annihilation. Well, I'll just go to hell. I'll burn up and I'll cease to exist. God says, not so. Even the worm isn't going to die. You say, well, maybe I'll just go there and I'll burn for a little bit and then I'll go to heaven. God says the fire is not quenched. It doesn't end. That hell is in eternal torment. And then for that term, he uses Gehenna. Now, that, again, that was a, the valley, the valley of Hinnom. It goes back into Jewish antiquity to a time when uh, some of their evil kings decided we'd kind of dabble in idolatry. And so you have Ahaz and you have Manasseh and they would have the children of Israel offer up their own babies to this giant superheated bronze altar to Molech. And the mothers would have to come and they would put their babies into the arms of this thing and the baby would be burned alive. And there would be shrieking and, and terror from these babies and the mothers were told that they cannot, they cannot cry because it would offend this God. And so you just had to watch your child die. It was a horrible place, a horrific place. And after they were carried off into captivity and came out of it, they never went to idol worship again. But nobody wanted to build their three-bedroom, two-bath in the Valley of Hinnom. It's not good real estate. It's associated with the darkest things that Israel ever did. So what do you do with that land? It becomes a landfill. It becomes a garbage dump. And everybody dumps the, the, the human waste and refuse and dead bodies and decaying carcasses and trash and dirt and just junk. And it's just, it's constantly burning. It's just a giant community burning trash heap that stinks in the smoke, the stench and the smoke rises from the ashes continually. This is the picture that Jesus gives of hell. It's continual burning and it's a foul place. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. I believe that refers to the fact that at that point, Bible talks about salt being associated with sacrifice. You become your own human sacrifice in hell. You can either allow Jesus to be your sacrifice or you can choose to be your own sacrifice, but if you do it yourself, you're gonna be there for eternity. God doesn't want you to do that. He already has a sacrifice that is sufficient for you. And before we kind of close up shop here, can I just dispel a couple of myths about hell? We have a, a few false ideas about hell. Number one, Satan's not in charge of hell. We get the idea that somehow Satan's the president of hell. Somehow he's the chief, the CEO of hell. Satan's not in hell and enjoying himself. Satan's being tormented himself. You realize that? Bill Weiss, the guy that wrote 23 Minutes in Hell, says he saw a bunch of demons and they were torturing people. Demons aren't torturing people in hell. Demons are being tortured. Revelation, again, chapter 20, verse 10. It says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown, an involuntary act, 
He was thrown into the lake of fire and the sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And then what happens to Satan? What does he do? Does he set up shop? Does he take over? It says, and they, the beast, the false prophet, Satan, they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. So Satan's, Satan's not in charge of hell. It's not, you know, sometimes people have a flippant view of hell too, another myth. People are like, oh, yeah, hell sounds like a great party. You know, you can go with me with God and you can pluck some harps and, you know, do your thing there. Or I can go to hell where it's a party all day long and we can do all those sinful things that all you backwards Christians told us we couldn't do and we're just gonna live in sin for the rest of our life. Friends, you're not gonna, you're not gonna enjoy hell like some big apocalyptic things, you know, themed spring break party. Hell is a horrific place. You're not gonna have any fellowship in hell because fellowship is a gift of God. Fellowship comes from the Lord. You're gonna be in outer darkness. If you were aware of the presence of anybody else there, it is only simply because you hear their tortured screams. You're not gonna have any fellowship. You're gonna be in darkness. You're gonna be completely alone with only your thoughts in this place of literal flames. When, when you're in pain, friend, and you're being tortured, and Satan's being tortured, and the demons are being tortured, there's no fellowship happening when you're being tortured. When you're in a lot of pain, do you really feel like fellowshipping with people? Think of the worst pain that you've been in in your life. I've had a lot of pain. You know, I had, uh, you ever had dry socket? That's fun. Um, you know, I had a head infection once. It felt like my head was gonna explode. That was a good time. I had appendicitis. But the worst pain that I ever had was that gangrenous gallbladder, infected gallbladder attack nearly took my life. And I was writhing and in, involuntarily writhing in pain. My body was just instinctively trying to seek out some kind of position I could get myself into that would lessen the pain even by the slightest degree. And even though I was in the light, even though my wife was right by my side, I had no enjoyment of her fellowship. All I could think of is God help me not to be in so much pain. Friends, hell is gonna be a far worse pain than gangrenous gallbladder attacks. You're gonna be in so much pain and suffering, you're not gonna have time for fellowshipping with your friends or your buddies. You're going to feel alone. You're gonna be in a place of darkness. And so no, hell is not a place that you wanna to go to if all your buddies are going there. When we went to China, it looked a little bit different. People weren't like, oh, if all my buddies are there, I wanna go there. They would say, if the message you say about Jesus is true, then my family's in hell. And if my family's in hell, I don't wanna be separated from my family forever. I wanna go to hell with them. They would, they would actually say these words. And I would take them to Luke 16 and say, friends, if your family is in hell, can I tell you, biblically speaking, they don't want you there? Luke chapter 16, we hear the words in the heart desire of this story of this rich man, sometimes called Dives, uh, this rich man and Lazarus, who Lazarus was full of sores and lived a horrible life. This rich man lived just for himself, never thought about God, never thought about people. And in hell, he just begs for this leprous man to dip his finger in water and just touch it to my tongue, just the slightest bit of relief. And then what was his prayer request while he's suffering? He says, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, this leprous man. For I have five brothers. Send him to them, why? So that they may not come. He warned them so that they will not come into this place of torment. Friends, if you have family members and loved ones and buddies that have gone to hell because they rejected Jesus, can I tell you right now that their biggest prayer request 
Their biggest prayer request is right now, this morning, you would contemplate your eternal future and that you would be saved. That's their prayer request. This is what Jesus says is the heart of man who is in torment. They don't want anybody there with them. And so this morning, I'd like to give us just a few moments just to contemplate that. Doesn't matter who else is in hell, friends. If they love you, they don't want you there. And I know this has been a hard message, friends, but let's take it to heart and let's think about it because why? It's where the wide path ends. It's where most people go. Let's allow that to, to break our hearts and to have compassion and to pray for those who are going there and better yet, to share the gospel with those who are on the wide path. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us your word, that Jesus who loves us, Jesus who is gentle, Jesus who is merciful, Jesus who is full of grace, and Jesus talked more about hell than anybody. Lord, if we're truly loving people in this, along the same vein as Jesus is, that we love as Jesus loves, God, may we talk about hell. Better yet, God, help us to talk about how they cannot be there. Help us to talk about the Christ who loves them, the Christ who died in their place, the Christ who gave us this, the option, if you will, to put our faith in him. Lord, I pray if there's any here today who do not know you, who do not know your son, Lord, who, they don't know what path they're on, but it sure looks a lot like the wide path. It's an easy path, it's a convenient path, it's the path that seems to be everybody else is taking. God, if there's any on the wide path today, let them contemplate their way. God, I pray that they would come and receive Jesus as their savior, as they would undoubtedly have loved ones who are in torment, who are praying for them right now. We ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.